0: Uh, Thank you for having me come back here. I guess not too many of you complained to Eric after the last time I preached here in June. So that's a good sign. And last time I was here, you guys were in the book of Genesis. Uh, I preach from chapter 37, 38, somewhere around there. But Genesis is a long book. I've noticed that you guys took about a year, I think, of going through that book, which is 50 chapters. So that's about right. But I found that with Genesis, if you understand the first three chapters, that makes so much more sense of the rest of the Bible. Like The first three are probably some of the most foundational in all the Bible, and now I believe you're going through the book of Psalms, a short four-week series through Psalms, and then Gospel of John, from what I heard, and Eric asked me to preach from the Psalms today, but... I told him I cannot preach from the Psalms. Uh, I actually would do, wanted to preach on prayer, on prayer today. And so if you would, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. It's the Lord's Prayer, which I'm sure if you've had much of a church history, it's probably familiar to you. But I find that with prayer, it can be a, a source of... Guilt and shame for the Christian rather than life-giving. Um, often when you ask a brother or sister in Christ how their prayer life is going, you, you can even see it on their face. They're like, "Ah, I know I should be praying more. I don't pray as often as I, as I want to. And it's like right away you can see the condemnation come down upon them. You could probably also uh, equate this in the same with like fasting or evangelism. Those are two places where we typically uh, know that we could do a lot better in. And what happens, or or should I say what can happen with that, is that guilt and shame of not praying can actually then drive us farther away from the Lord. Because then when we do actually pray, we we feel like condemned almost or like God's angry with us that we haven't been praying as often or that it may even feel awkward because we're not in the habit of praying. So we pray really hard for like 30 seconds and then you run out of things to say and your mind goes blank. Is anyone there with me on that at times? Yeah, that can happen. And I don't want to be obvious, well, I do want to be obvious here. That's not good for our relationship with the Lord. Like if we don't grow in prayer, we'll hit a ceiling in our relationship with the Lord. Prayer is oxygen for the spiritual life. I thought of forsaking prayer as like running the race of faith with one of those elevation masks on. Has anyone ever seen those elevation masks? You wear them that restricts the flow of oxygen to your heart and lungs. Like sometimes athletes train with these to make their heart and lungs stronger because it restricts the flow. I think that's a heart attack waiting to happen. I would never ever do that. But I guess some athletes would like to do that. when Brothers and sisters, when we run the race of faith and we forsake prayer and never grow in it, that's wearing the elevation mask and the race of faith. And the Lord wants us to rip that off and run. And so I get excited whenever someone is preaching on prayer or teaching on it because that is a time that I hope is a, is a strengthening of our spiritual lungs and heart that we would grow and be more devoted in prayer. And for those of you who are like, yeah, I, I want to pray. I have a desire to pray. I just don't know how. Or I run out of things to say in prayer. Be encouraged. The disciples themselves that followed Jesus, they asked Jesus, they said, teach us to pray in Luke chapter 11, which is pretty profound when you think about it. I mean, think of all the miracles that Jesus did in his ministry. He fed thousands of people at one time with a kid's lunch. He raised the dead. He told the storm to stop. Like, can you imagine if we had that going on here at this church, what kind of attraction that would be for this ministry? If you could do that. And yet the only thing we have the disciples asking Jesus to teach them in the scriptures is to pray. Teach us to pray. And then here in the Lord's Prayer, better, it should be titled the Disciples Prayer. We have Jesus himself saying, when you pray, pray like this. This isn't some creative thought I had on how we should pray. It's not what Eric wanted necessarily to say, teach the people to pray like this. No, this is Jesus Christ saying, when you pray, pray like this. God himself teaches us. So what a gift we have here this morning in the Lord's prayer or disciples' prayer, as I said. Now... I don't have enough time, and nor do you guys want to sit here for me to walk through the entire Lord's Prayer, but we are going to scratch the surface here and just look at one verse, Matthew 6, verse 9. where I'm going to read this from the ESV. I know that many of you I saw had the CSB, which is a very good translation, but the ESV says, Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven hallowed be your name. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Those are the eight words we're going to look at. And I have three points I want to draw out from that one verse. It's Father, heaven, and hollow. Father, heaven, and hollow. And while I'm at it, I might as well just tell you the application, which I'm sure many of you could probably guess. If I'm preaching on prayer, what do you think the application is going to be? Prayer. That's right. Thank you, D. Pray. And that's why I want to encourage all of you to do is to make this a daily habit for yourself. Some of you in here, I'm sure, are prayer warriors, and that's, that's not going to be hard for you. Continue in that. For others of you, you may say, I struggle to pray every day, or I struggle to pray past 30 seconds. Grow in that. Just pray what you got. And make it a habit, a law unto yourself to pray every single day unto the Lord. Because the other thing that gets me excited about a church that's devoted in prayer is because the Lord can do more with a tiny church in Menonk that's devoted to prayer than a mega church that has a $10 million budget. Because it's not about the resources that we have. It's about the God that we serve. And he's the one that can change things. And so let's go to the first point here, Father. Now I imagine that Matthew, the writer of this gospel, was probably much more in awe of the fact when he wrote the Lord's Prayer than when he actually first heard it in the Sermon on the Mount. Now both times Matthew was probably jarred when Jesus uses those words to describe the relationship with God. But when he wrote this gospel account, Jesus had been crucified, resurrected, and the Holy Spirit had been given to him. So Matthew had a much deeper understanding of what it meant to call God Father. When we say our Father, we're not talking about the universality of the fatherhood of God. What I mean by that is that we're not talking about the fact that he is creator of all people and creatures. There is some sense we get from the Scriptures that God is Father of all. Even in this area, many people I've talked to who aren't necessarily believers, they're like, yeah, God's Father. He created everything. I was like, well, yes and no. Because Scripture portrays it in two different ways. And Matthew, throughout the Gospel, is referring to God as Father in relationship terms. Forty-three times throughout the Gospel of Matthew, he, God, or Jesus refers to the Father. Now, 38 of those occurrences, he puts a pronoun, a personal pronoun, right before it. When he's talking to the disciples, he says... your father. When he's speaking of his own personal relationship, he says, my father. And when speaking about the sons of the kingdom, he says, their father. And the five times he doesn't use that personal pronoun, he's still talking about the unique relationship of father and son. And so what Jesus is talking about here when he says, pray then like this, is the glorious reality that through faith in Jesus Christ, we are adopted into God's family. Now, Scripture makes this point really clear in some verses here. John 1, 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. That, I love it when Scripture is clear like that. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under a law, to redeem those who were under a law, so that, whenever we read that phrase, so that in scripture, it's getting ready to tell us the reason of why it says, why he's done what he's done. He says, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are a son, God has sent the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Through faith in Jesus, the adoption price has been paid by the blood of Christ. And on top of that, then, he covers us with his righteousness and adopts us then into the family. I love what uh, famous author, Pastor J.I. Packer, has to say about this, which His book, Knowing God, he has a whole chapter on adoption, which is very good, but this is one of the quotes from it. He says, In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children, heirs. Closeness, affection, generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge which is justification, right? We're declared innocent. is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father, which is the adoption, is a greater thing. God no longer is some distant deity that we don't know. He's not a God that we have to say certain prayers with or do certain works. Prayer is not a matter of what posture we're in or what direction we're facing or if our eyes are opened or not. Prayer is a matter of talking to the Father. It's one of the great things I love about starting off this prayer, our Father. It reminds us who God is and that we can come to Him based upon the work of Christ, not based upon our own works that Christ has paid the price for us. And the fatherhood of God is so different and far greater than even the best earthly dad in this room. No matter what, earthly dads here and all over the world are sinful. We're fallen. Earthly dads at times lack wisdom. I appreciate no amens on that. Earthly dads at times, they don't understand the child's heart. Earthly dads at times grow tired and moody. Like when my child keeps asking me a question over and over and over again, I've already answered and I'm tired and moody, what comes out of my mouth next is not a good projection of what God the Father is like. I remember one time with my oldest He kept asking me, and I said, ask me again and see what happens. Which he took that as an invitation to ask. I meant that as a threat, which my wife kindly informed me. Grant, he's a little too young to understand what you meant by that. But it's different with God. God actually tells us in Scripture to keep asking, to keep seeking, to keep knocking in Luke chapter 11. In Luke chapter 18, he gives us a parable of the persistent widow and says, keep coming to me, annoy me, wear me down. Not that we ever can, but he encourages us to come to him. He's never too busy running the entire universe. He's always available to us. He is our father and I know that for some of you in here, this would completely transform your prayer life if you actually believe this. It would transform your walk with God if you grasp this in your heart. If you stop seeing God as the disappointed, furrow-brow, harsh drill sergeant and started seeing Him as a loving Father. Not as one who regrets saving you. But is one who forgives, redeems, and strengthens you. He is the one that can heal our brokenness, that understands us perfectly. Oftentimes, when we sin, we treat God like He is an angry father, and you just need to give Him space in order to cool down, right? And then you can go back to Him after a few days have passed. That's not God. That's not God at all. He's the Father that runs to us when we turn to Him. Even in our sin, that is the best time to then turn towards God and call upon Him. It is astounding, church, that Jesus uses this language to describe the relationship we can have with God, our Father. That's the first point. The second one is the next two words, in heaven, our Father in heaven. We must remember that when scripture says God's in heaven, that is not the only place God is in. Second Chronicles 2.6 says, the heaven of heavens does not contain him. But what is being conveyed here is that God is sovereign over all things that His power sustains all, His providence orders all, that He holds the whole world in His hand. He is over all of creation. He is the Holy One, the Almighty, the omniscient, Omnipresent Creator, the Ancient of Days who is outside time. He is the one that demons and angels fall before, some in fear and some in worship. Psalm 2 says that God sits on His throne and laughs, When the rulers of this world war against him, it's like a baby challenging a UFC fighter. That would be a joke. And that's what it's like when the people gather together to war against God. There is none like him. I love the lyrics to the song Behold Our God, which I'm assuming you sing here from time to time. Even that song we just got done singing. Only a Holy God, when they ask questions that are really easy questions that we know the answers to. I like those kinds of songs, but it says, for who has held the oceans in his hands? Who has numbered every grain of sand? Who has given counsel to the Lord? Who can question any of his words? Who can teach the one who knows all things? No one. Psalm 115, 3, our God is in heaven, and whatever He wills, He does. He reigns above it all. This almighty, all-powerful God is the one we get to talk with, and I think one of the reasons that many of us don't get that excited about prayer is because we have a very low view of God. We don't think this almighty will actually hear us or do anything. But I just, I love how these two points go together. These are fantastic points. Our Father in heaven, that He has love and power, care and authority, tenderness and dominion. He's merciful and majestic. He's Father and King. He is the Lamb and Lion. He is the prince of peace and yet divides households. He is our helper and yet needs no help whatsoever. He's approachable and yet dwells in unapproachable light. He communes with sinners and he's holy, holy, holy. He's with us everywhere we go and yet far above us. He weeps with us in our brokenness and redeems our brokenness. He wipes away our tears and is powerful enough to make all things new. Our God is a mighty good God and a mighty glorious God. And we have to hold these two truths together. We often lose these two and they go together. They're not enemies or contradictory, they're friends. So, which one do you tend to lean on more and forget about the other? Oftentimes, people think, He's a father, He's a friend. I'll go to Him. Jesus is my homeboy. And it's like, yes, but he's also holy and distinct. Angels fall down before him. And then others of us are so on the holy side that we forget that he's a father. And we think we have to say really big words or do really important things in order to have him hear us. No, he's our father in heaven. See, those two go together. Our father in heaven. And then the third and and final point, hallowed be your name. Now this line in the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name, is probably the least understood line in the prayer. And I find it ironic that Jesus tells us there in verse 7, two verses before 6-9, they're not just repeat empty phrases when we pray. Not just to say it with mindless repetition. And yet the Lord's Prayer is probably the prayer that's repeated most. And I have found that very few people actually understand what "Hallowed be your name is. Because it's kind of old, archaic language. At the church I went to as a kid, which I hated church as a kid. Karen was actually probably my Sunday school teacher at one point. I don't know, but you knew me as a kid. And I did not like it. It was the church in Gridley back then, First United Church. And every Sunday, we repeated the Lord's Prayer. And I had no clue what any of that meant. And I didn't care to ask what any of it meant. I just mindlessly said it week after week. Hallowed be your name. So what does that word, hollow, mean? The word hollow means to make holy, to sanctify. But that doesn't make any sense when it comes to God because he's perfectly holy. So why would we say, hallowed be your name? It's not that we make God holy, but it's we honor him as holy. And I actually, I like it that I saw the CSB over there because they have a really good translation of what this verse means. It says, your name be honored as holy. It's that we would render the name of God. Name of God means it's the summation of who God is. It's all his attributes. It's that we would render the name of God as sacred. That we would have reverence for him, praise, that we would be that he would be glorified in our life and throughout the entire world. It's that God would pull back the curtain and reveal his glory to everyone. That they would see how glorious and wonderful and majestic. He really is, is that we would treasure and cherish and esteem his name above all else. That's what it means to hollow be your name. So it involves praising the name of God that actually begins in our hearts. Cause as we read in scripture, you don't want to be a people that honors God with your lips, but not with your heart. That that praise rises up through our hearts. It comes out of our mouths. It's words that we say. To the Lord, And then it's also our good deeds. Because if you look a few verses before in Matthew 5.16, he talks about how people will see your good deeds and give glory to God the Father. So that's what it means to hollow his name. Now if you take a step back and, and look at the Lord's Prayer, you'll probably notice that the first three petitions in that prayer deal with the glory of God. And then the second three there deal with our needs. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts and the rest of it there. But another way to break this prayer up is to see that this first request, hallowed be your name, is unique. It's it's different than the rest of the prayer. And the reason why is because this first request is the summation of the others. There's no higher purpose than to hollow God's name. Like, for example, when He says, "Your kingdom come," it's so that Your name is hollowed. "Your will be done," so that Your name is hollowed. "Give us this day our daily bread." "Forgive me of my debts." "Protect us from evil," so that Your name is hollowed. It's the petition, the ask of Lord that comes first, and therefore influences the rest of the prayer. When I was thinking about this, I came across a helpful illustration. And so I'll I'll pass it on to you. But imagine if one of your kids came up to you and said, Dad, I have a few requests to make of you. But before I ask you these things, I want you to know that I love you. And whatever you decide, I want you to be honored. Now, I'm sure that most of us would be like, did your mother put you up to this? like, are you sick? What's going on here? But when your child asks you that, you know that that request, that desire for you to be honored influences all of the requests that they're, they're going to ask you. It's the foundation to the prayer, it gives flavor to the other requests. The hallowing of God's name is first and primary in the believer's life. It's what can, and what can happen in our prayer lives is that we just spend all of our time praying for the second half of the Lord's prayer. Give us this bread, or give us this day our daily bread. So give me my needs, Lord, Maybe you have physical problems or bills or whatever it may be that daily you you feel like you want to go to the Lord for, which is good. And I even hesitate to not criticize, but bring this point up because I don't want you to hear me say, don't take your daily needs to the Lord. Definitely we should do that. But when we spend all of our time just praying, the second half of this prayer and it's all about us and our family. It can cause our prayer life just to get small and smaller and smaller. And what this, what this does for us is it lifts our heads up when we say, hallowed be your name. Sometimes in the summer, I like to run in the mornings. I'm not very good at running, but... I enjoy it, and when I run, I I tend to look down right in front of me. Uh, One, because I don't want to step in a pothole or crack and twist my ankle, and everyone to see a grown man crying on the side of the street is weird at 5.30 in the morning. The other one is I run with my dog, Leo, and Leo starts off strong, but then he tends to die out, and he has to run right in front of me like I don't understand why. It's so annoying. It's right there in front of me. And so I got to dodge him a lot. But sometimes I'll get to the end of my run, and I'll look up, and I'll see this glorious sunrise. I'm like, man, I almost ran the entire time without seeing that. And for a brief second, I forget about how bad my back hurts and how my lungs are burning Because I see a greater glory. I see something much bigger than myself. And hallowed be your name is the Lord lifting your head up and saying, Look, you're a part of something that is much bigger than you. You're a part of an eternal, unbreakable kingdom that has existed since the beginning. Look up. Look up, you've been adopted into God's family. You're His child. And you're gathered together with other brothers and sisters all around the world. I love on Sunday mornings, in particular Sunday mornings, to think through, I wonder how many people God's going to save today as the Word is proclaimed. Like, how many addictions are going to be broken today? How many marriages are going to be restored? How many people is Satan going to lose in his kingdom? Day by day, thousands of people are being saved all around the world. Every year, there are less and less people groups who have not heard the name of Jesus. I read an article the other day. that said in 1979, in the country of Iran, there was about estimated 500 Christians. And then heavy persecution came, and they kicked out all missionaries out of that country. And they even took out the New Testament scriptures in their native language. And yet today, Operation World, which is a research organization for where Christianity spread, says it's the fastest-growing evangelical church in the entire world. There are hundreds and thousands of Christians, some say even over a million, and thats from, that's in my lifetime, from 1979 to today. Isn't that awesome? Like, you can't stop the Lord's kingdom. He laughs when the rulers war against him. Get rid of the missionaries. It doesn't matter. The Lord's kingdom will be built. And the Lord calls us to to pray this big and glorious prayer. To not just have small, imbalanced prayers, but to say, hallowed be your name. And you can just pray this out in concentric circles. Lord, hallowed be your name in my life today. Hallowed be your name at my work today. Hallowed be your name in my family today. When you lay your head down on the pillow, hallowed be your name. Oh, Lord, hallowed be your name It Redeemer in the churches in central Illinois. Hallowed be your name across the globe, Lord. Pull back the curtain. Show your glory. And when we start our prayers with God first, it influences then and in how we're going to pray for our daily needs. It's not going to solve your problems. You're still going to have pain. You're still going to have sorrow. We can't get away from that in this fallen world, but I would argue that you will find there is more joy in life when your first priority is to hollow His name above all else because that is how God has made us. We were created by Him and for Him. And so therefore, our greatest joy in life It's for us to hollow the name of God. And you will see there's then a far greater glory that will eclipse some of the problems that we have. And your heart be lifted up. You'll be strengthened in the faith. It's glorious what God will do if we would make this first and primary. And even if you're in here today and you're like, I don't care about God's name. Man, just confess that to him. As I said in the beginning of this sermon, like, pray what you got. Be honest with the Lord. And say, Lord, I don't really care about the glory of your name, but I want to. Could you do that change in my heart? That's a prayer that the Lord would love to answer. And so let's take a few minutes here, and I'll lead us in prayer through these first three points, and then we'll, we'll close. So if you would, bow your heads and close your eyes. Not that you have to, but I find that that just helps people focus. Our Father, Lord, I, th- I thank you that you are not a distant God from us. But that you are our Father, that you have affection for us, that you do care about our needs, Lord, and you even tell us to ask for that. I thank you that you're so different from the sinful fathers we have, and that you are perfect in all your ways, and that you're good. Father, I thank you that you're in heaven, that you're all-powerful and glorious, that right now there's thousands of angels worshiping you, falling down before you, that as crazy as this world is, Lord, we know that you're on the throne and that there is none that can stop your kingdom from being built you reign above it all. And Lord, we ask that your name would be hallowed. That you would grow our understanding of how great and glorious you are. For that is a depth that we'll never reach. But Lord, we ask that we would go deeper with you. And not just us here, but we do pray for Manunk and the surrounding areas, Lord, that your name would be hallowed and that you would pull back the curtain of your glory and that more and more people would see it and that there would be a, a plundering of Satan's kingdom, not just here, but throughout the land, Lord, and that more and more people would give you praise. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen.